We're going to jump right into our text here this morning as we continue in our series, In Pursuit of Meaning. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, verse 16 is where we're going to begin. Uh, we're going to get there in a moment. We're going to recap some stuff. So let's kind of put a, a, a piece of paper there, or your finger there. But Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If you need a Bible, take one of the ones we have in the seat. Make it your own. Mark it up. Make notes. Circle things you have questions on. Highlight stuff. Uh, as always, the, the text will be on the screens as well. Uh, if you want to go digital, you can go on the Meadowland free Wi-Fi uh, for that purpose. And you can get God's word in front of you. This journey that we've been on, we've been walking with King Solomon, right? He was king of Israel. He was the last king before there was this, this major meltdown uh, where, where we get this division of, uh, of the nation into two different nations. Um, and so he is the king. He has been blessed with wisdom. God has given him more wisdom than anyone ever had or ever will have had on this earth. And he's got all the power and authority that a king would have. And so with this position of limitlessness, he sets out to find what is the meaning of all this? What is the purpose of life? And we're in that same journey together as well, right? And so hopefully, partly because we don't have the same uh, limitlessness that Solomon had, we have our limits. Uh, eventually the bank account will run dry. Our authority will run uh, dry at some point. Our wisdom is lacking compared to Solomon's. So hopefully we can learn from his experience. Hopefully we can read his account, read his story, and say, okay, what did Solomon find out as he pursued meaning? Last week we talked about all the different seasons of life that we go through, and there's some that we desire, and there's some not so much. But one of the things we walked away from uh, last week with was this concept, this reminder that we don't have any control. As we talk through these different seasons of life, it wasn't we get to pick and choose which ones we want to experience and which ones we don't, but it's more like the seasons of nature where winter's coming no matter what. Spring comes after winter, and then uh, construction takes over all the way until next winter. Um, but we have these seasons of, of nature that just continue no matter what, and Solomon has this conclusion of just find pleasure in your toil. Ecclesiastes 3, 12-13 was one of the places we looked Last week, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And it might seem backward that after here Solomon's looking at all these different seasons of life, and uh, you know, for every positive one, there's a lot of times a negative one. You know, a time to be born, a time to die, you know, a time for peace, a time for war, a time for celebration, a time for mourning. You look at some of those, like, well, I don't want to go through a season of mourning. I don't want to go through a season of death or, some, or war or some of these other things. And yet Solomon's saying we should find pleasure in, in, in all these seasons. It seems backwards. It doesn't seem to make sense. But as we unpack it, we begin to see that in some of those moments, the joy isn't so much in the season he is in. If you can't stand the winter, you can still be a joyful person in the middle of winter. If you can't stand the humidity of spring when the rain comes and the temperature goes up and down, you can still find joy in the spring because why? Because God's given you breath in your lungs. He's given you life. He's given you purpose and meaning. And Solomon's walking that road, unpacking some of that, saying, okay, I can still find joy in who God is. We talked about that last week, right? How God is good. God is eternal. God is loving. And the joy that we can have as we acknowledge that. This is actually something that we see the Apostle Paul go through as well. Here's someone, if you're not familiar with Paul, he, he's seen everything uh, that there is to see in the sense of uh, he came from a place of comfort and position and authority to then having nothing, to being a prisoner, to losing everything, to being beaten, 
And so he's seen what it's like to have plenty. He's seen what it's like to have nothing. And he comes to this place in Philippians 4, 11b through 13. It's always important to point out that he wrote this while imprisoned. So this, is, this wasn't like, hey, I got everything going for me. Hey, everything's good no matter what your situation. No, he's going through the worst of it saying this. He says this, For I have learned in whatever situation I am, uh, situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the secret he's referring to, is that, that focus on Christ. Finding that strength in God to say, no matter what is going on, no matter what my exterior circumstances, no matter what season of life I am in, good or bad, God is consistent. God is the same. God is in control. God is good. God is eternal. And while there's still maybe questions that I have and, and struggles that I work through, I can find joy in that reality. And ultimately, uh, our hope is in God and His work. And we saw this beautiful passage in Ecclesiastes 3.11 where it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into, the, into man's heart. That God is working everything to this place of beauty. And the best examples I can think of, we talked about this first one last week, we talked about childbirth, right? That there's this, uh, maybe a couple trying to get pregnant, and there's the, the, the fun and the joy of that. They find out they're getting, that they are pregnant, and there's a celebration in there, and then there's these nine months of, of uh, throwing up and aches and pains, and I hear it's hard on the lady as well, and you have all this different stuff that you're going through, and then there's labor, and all the pushing and shoving and screaming, you know, just trying to get a good view of what's going on, and, and it's getting hard for the lady as well. So all, all these challenges, and you know, some of us even have a story, you know, it never fails to surprise me how few typical birth stories I hear. Someone has a, a baby, we celebrate with them, we're so excited for that. It's really, how'd it go? Oh, it's good, you know? Felt a little something going on, went to the hospital, had a baby, here's a baby, we're home. There's usually some kind of hiccup, some kind of complication, sometimes minor, sometimes major, where all of a sudden now you're in a season of suffering much more than you ever expected. But then maybe God works through that and comes to a place where, okay, you have this child and you celebrate that and there's this joy, there's this beauty, there's this life. And so despite the ups and downs that led you to that point, there's joy along the way as we see the beauty and the work that God is doing. Now apply that to our lives. Sometimes we're, we're caught up in, in those difficult times. At one point, I've shared this before, I had an old Jeep, a 1980 CJ7, and this Jeep was going through cycles and seasons where it, it would break down. I'd be, um, one particular time, I was actually in a funeral procession, and it started to overheat, and it broke down on me, and I pulled over, and fortunately, someone else in the line saw this and pulled over and picked me up as I just left my Jeep on the side of the road. And so I'd get it, and I'd fix it, and of course, you can never just fix something. You've got to upgrade it. You've got to you know, put something extra in. That's your excuse for that. And then something else would break and kind of had this cycle of breaking down repairing upgrading breaking down repairing upgrading and then i kind of finished it for the most part just for that moment because it's never quite finished for any car guys out there you understand and then i sold it because there's a new season of life coming it was we, we had our first child and it was wasn't a hat to but it was a hey this would be wise just to you know get past this and, and sell this and use these funds to prepare for something else and and so there's all these highs and lows that go through there but there was joy throughout I thank God for that season. And that's what God's doing in our life. So yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's struggle. Yes, there's these challenges. But we can still find a joy internally and externally express that in God. And so that's what we talked about last week. And I really wanted to recap that here this morning because Solomon just kind of flows right off of that. 
this constant, all these seasons in life, and he's looking around at the life around him. And what we're going to do is we're going to close out chapter 3 with three things. I want to give you a preview. I want to give you a tangent. I'm going to give you an overview. Okay, so it's kind of one of those you tell them what you tell them, you tell them it, and then you tell them what you told them. So I'm going to give you a preview. I'm going to give you a tangent. I'm going to give you an overview, okay? So let's jump in. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. This is going to be the preview. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Again, we see this heart of there's a season. There's a time for everything under the sun. And he's looking at a place where he would expect justice. He's looking at a place where he would expect righteousness. And he's seeing what? He's seeing wickedness. He's seeing the injustice and unrighteousness of this broken world that we live in. Have you ever, have you ever felt that way? I mean, just pause and, and look around to think about the world that we live in. You can think locally or globally. And we can think of ways that this world is just broken. Last week was a, was a holiday weekend, Memorial Day weekend. Almost 70 people were shot in Chicago alone, just the city of Chicago. Almost 70 people on that holiday weekend were shot. That includes the, the holiday as well, so it's not just the two days, but uh, the three. Of those, six died. I mean, it's a broken world that we live in locally. I read an article about uh, supposedly an ongoing problem that they're having in the UN. I think you know how widespread this is, but there are stories and accounts where people go in with the UN. They're going to the, those in the greatest need, and they're supposed to be helping them and serving them. And there's these stories coming out of these people going in and sexually assaulting these people in great need. Where they say, we have food and water, but what will you give me for it? And, and, and treating people like that. It just broke my heart. Here's someone in a position of suffering, and, and they're just getting more and more suffering. Especially from someone who's gone, going to them under the premise of serving them and, and caring for them. And we live in a messed up, broken world. That's what Solomon's seen. There's injustice. There's unrighteousness. All this garbage is going on. That, that's the preview. Chapter 4, he's going to pick up on this a little more. And so next week, we're going to unpack this problem of evil. How do we pursue meaning in this world when we see all this evil around us? But for today, there's still something we need to pull out of this. We, we think about these kind of things. and we, we put ourselves in Solomon's position and look out around our world and our community. We see all the brokenness. One of the things that we need to be reminded of is that I have issues. You have issues. We, we all have issues. We're all broken. We all have ways that we fall short. We all have ways that we have parts of us we try to hide or cover up or we're not sure what to do with. We are all broken people, and that's okay. You're in good company. We don't stand here uh, as a church and say that we're perfect. We stand here and say we're being perfected by Jesus. It's not that we are free from sin, but our sin is dealt with and forgiven by Jesus, and we're doing our best to walk in his ways. I think sometimes we can look at others and say, you know, well, I'm not as bad as that person, right? But that's kind of like being a mess yourself and looking at someone who's got more mud on them and saying, hey, that, that guy's muddier than me. Yeah, but you're still a mess. And that's the same is true for me. I'm, I'm a mess too. We all have ways that we are broken, but we're going to talk more, more about that next week. So that's the preview. I got a tangent for you. 
If you like bunny trails, we're going we're to take one right now. Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 20. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that, that, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All is meaningless, he's saying. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Have you ever read something in your Bible that you don't understand? Or someone shared it with you? Hey, what do you think this passage means? You're like, I have no idea. Or, or have you ever read something like, I, I think it's saying this, but I, I'm not quite sure. Have you ever had those moments? I, I want to give you some tools for what you do when you come across moments like that. Well, two things I want you to look for. Uh, context and continuity. We're, we're going to look at context first. You want to look for context. What is going on surrounding this text? Whatever part you have a question about, is this really what it says? What does this mean? Look at what's going on around it. That's called the context. And then the continuity is what's going on in the whole of Scripture. We begin in its own story, in the context that we find it in, but then we also look at it in the whole of Scripture as we seek to say, what, what does this mean? Help me to understand this. For example, we have this line, man has no advantage over the beasts. We also see in verse 20, all go to one place. What, what is this referring to? Is this putting us on an, on an even playing field with animals that man has no advantage over the beasts? Is this all go to one place? What is that one place referring to? See, there's confusion in our culture, and I'd say there's confusion in our churches, even on this topic of, of humans and animals, and this question of are, are, people and, and, are people and animals on the same level of significance? Well, let's look at the context. What, what does this really mean? What is this talking about? We see in verse 20, all are from dust, and to dust all return. All are from dust, and to dust all return. This is a reference back to that we are formed from the dust, that, that basically that we're, all, we're made and then we all die. And if you say, well, I'm not really sure if that's what that's saying, Steve, go to verse 19. As one dies, so dies the other. That's pretty straightforward, pretty clear. So basically, as we begin to look at the context of this, we can see, okay, this one place that we all go is referring to death. It's referring to death. It's saying that animals will die, we'll go to a place of death, and people will die. We will go to a place of death. And, and that's this no advantage. We can unpack that. Well, does it mean we have no advantage because, you know, bears are stronger and birds can fly and fish can swim better than us? You know, is that what it means, no advantage? No, it simply means we're all going to the same place in the sense of the same place of death, the same place of the grave. Man and beast both die. No one has an advantage. There's not some immortal version of lizards that are still walking you know, ever since God made them, but we all die. We need to be cautious not to make the text say something the text doesn't say. Whenever we're reading scriptures and, and asking questions, well, what does this mean? What does this understand? We've got to be cautious not to make the text say something the text doesn't say. Have you ever had someone say something back to you like, oh, remember when you said this? Like, I didn't say that. That's not at all what I said. You totally misunderstood me. But we don't want to do that to God's word either. See, this is not saying that, okay, um, whoever, you know, we all end up in the same place. Well, what could that place be? Well, people pay taxes. So is it saying that animals need to pay taxes too? 
It's the same place. You know, people wear clothes. They got to go get clothes. Is it saying that animals need to wear clothes too? Some of you might defend that one a little bit. It's not just saying any random place that we want to pick, but we look at the context and we see it's saying that both people and beasts will die. So we look at the context to figure out more about the text. We look at the continuity. Once you think you understand what the text means in context, look for what it means in the rest of Scripture. Are there other places in God's Word that we can learn more about this topic? Are there any other examples of similar topics that we can glean from? And we begin to see, uh, look through the lens of the creation of count, the relationship between humans and animals. I think we, we understand a little more what we might be reading about here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Go, if you want, uh, I'll be on the screen. You don't need to turn if you don't want to. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, and then verse 31 as well. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Jump to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So as we say, okay, we're trying to figure out more about the relationship between humans and animals. Where else can we see that unpack? Okay, let's go to the, cre- the creation account. So we turn over to Genesis chapter 1 and we start reading. What do we see? Well, the first things we see is that people are made in the image of God. If you want to read the whole account, go for it. Start Genesis chapter 1 and you see God speaks and he makes. I mean, he speaks and this appears. He speaks and that appears. And all of a sudden it gets to humans. It says he formed Adam from the dust of the ground. Breathe life into him. And then cause Adam to fall into sleep and takes a rib and from that rib makes Eve. So much more intimate involvement in the creation. But all that aside, the text God says, let us make man in his own image. God made us in his image. No other creation can say that. No one else can say that. And so that, that's significant. Genesis 2-7, Then the Lord God formed the man of, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. We were made in his image. We are image bearers of God. Something else we can see in this is that people are given dominion over the earth, which includes all the animals in it. We're given dominion. We have a seat of authority and stewardship. Now here's where Sometimes people can, we can go off on, on our own little divergence. It says that we have dominion over this world. If you are in charge, does that give you the right to be a jerk? Older siblings, anyone want to speak up to that? No. Just because God's given us dominion over this earth doesn't mean we have the right to use it however the heck we please. Sometimes people say, I have dominion over this earth. Let me squish different things and whatever. I'm going to do whatever I want. No, we're put in a position of authority, a position of stewardship, to be good stewards of, of what God has given us. Not, that's a whole other series we could unpack another day. But we see that God has made us in his image. We are his image bearers, which elevates who we are in, in, in the created order that we are given dominion over this earth, but also we see that all God made is good. Uh, after the sixth day, he's kind of done creating, he says, it's all very good. And so th- th- there's a commonality there 
as well. This is not a devaluing of animals, but it's an elevation of people. I really hesitated whether or not I want to bring this example up, uh, just because I, I know it can be divisive, but I think it makes the point. Uh, there's a story in the news about the, the gorilla in the Cincinnati Zoo. If you haven't heard about it, uh, a tragic story where a young child uh, fell into the gorilla exhibit, basically got under the fence and crawled and, and fell into this, this shallow moat. There's this 15-foot drop-off in this shallow moat where the child could sit in it and not drown, uh, but this massive gorilla comes over to the child. And uh, this all takes place in a matter of about nine, 10 minutes, I believe. And eventually the zoo makes the decision to kill the, the ape. And there's all, I've, I've looked at different things and some people say, you know, why didn't they just tranquilize it? And then the experts say that the tranq would just agitate it because of the position that, you know, the, 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 uh, the situation going on. And so they, they couldn't take that risk. Some would say, you know, he's not going to harm the child. You know, he, he didn't have any malicious intent, even though you see him dragging the child around the moat. Some would say he didn't realize what he was doing. But that's kind of the problem is even if he was trying to protect him, he doesn't realize his own strength. And all these different arguments that go out there. At the end of the day, the, the experts, the zoo said, this child's life is at risk, whether the gorilla means him harm or not. The best solution is to save and protect this child now. Not maybe in a few minutes, not with, you know, let's figure out some other plans. There's value in this child's life. It doesn't devalue the gorilla. If anyone is going to value the life of that gorilla, it's going to be that, the zoo that, that loves and cares for and is trying to uh, raise awareness, is trying to raise funds to protect these animals. They're the ones that, that, that you know, be the forefront of that banner. And they're the ones that said the right thing to do is to take the life of this gorilla. And so is it tragic? Yes. It is tragic. But we need to see that the right decision was made in that. I saw a, pl a political cartoon that shows a boat full of refugees with this big cage right in the middle of them with a gorilla in the cage. And this kind of, the one refugee is saying to another, we brought him along so people would care. And we see we live in a, in a culture where, where there the gets to a degree where our, our values get misguided. And we see things that are tragic. And they are. And should we care for this created world? Should we care for things like gorillas? Should we care for uh, species that are going extinct? Yes, we should. Should we do something about that? Yes, we should. This is not a devaluing of animals, but it's an elevation of the image bearers of God. This isn't a question of, of either or. Do we care for the animals or do we care for people? Both are worthy of care. And even though we both die, we see that humans are elevated as, as image bearers of God. This is a broken world that we live in. People and animals alike will all die. So, so, so what comes after? So that was our, our, our little tangent down there. We won't come back to this question. So we've got a preview for next week. We've got this tangent uh, on, on this piece here on animals. But the question I want to ask here, Solomon hits on it in Ecclesiastes 3, 21 through 22. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. It kind of rephrases the question here. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? He kind of has this one question that he phrases two different ways. and it's, We could simplify it this way. What happens after we die? Who, who knows what happens after we die? No one's come back to say, hey, here, here's what happened. You know, what happens after we die? It's, it's a valid question. I think it's a question that, if we're honest with ourselves, um, we've all asked in some capacity or another. Hopefully you have. 
as we realize that we are finite creations, that these bodies break down and, and there's a point of death coming at some point. So what happens after that? Well, some would believe that nothing happens, that this world is all that we have. And you see those people trying to, to, to make the most of this life because they believe that there's nothing after it. And quite honestly, as I look at the evidence, not only for God, but for the loving God of the Bible who offers his son Jesus, I think it takes more faith to believe he doesn't exist. I think it takes more faith to believe that there's nothing after this life, that there's not a God in heaven who loves us and who's pursuing us through his son Jesus. Some would believe in, in reincarnation, this, hey, you know, until you get it right, and there's even varying understandings and degrees of what that looks like, you become reincarnated as someone else or something else, as a different animal or a different person. Um, until you, you have this kind of self-actualization of uh, becoming one with the universe, they refer to us as nirvana. Um, but think about what this would be. I mean, you have no knowledge of, of previous what the previous mistake was of why, you know, if this was true, what your previous self had done that, that brought you to this place of being reincarnated into someone or something else. Um, it's like being in a game where you don't know what the game is called, you don't know how to play it, you don't know the score, you don't know the rules, and you're sent out and you said, hey, go win, win one for the team. But you don't know anything, you don't know what's going on. Imagine never playing, you know, if you play croquet, you probably have this feeling. Someone hands you a croquet mallet and says, all right, go play. You're like, what do I do? I, I go through water. I, I, I can't do this. Or I can't miss so many rules in that game. It's crazy. Um, but it's like, that's what we would be like, you know, this mindset of, hey, we're reincarnated. It just doesn't hold up as we begin to unpack that. Honestly, I think a majority of people, in varying degrees, believe in some aspect of judgment. I think a good majority of people would say, hey, after I die, there's going to be some kind of judgment. There's some kind of a wane of my life. We kind of think of these big, massive scales where we have the good on one side and the bad on the other. But even this, when we truly stop and look at this, falls way short. Because what's the measure? What's the measure we need to live up to? And even if we knew what that was, how do we know what the score is at any given time? Do do I have enough good deeds or do I just kind of guess and and hope that I, I think I have enough? But really stop and think for a moment how unjust a system like this is. If it truly is a system of weighing our our good over our bad, think about how unjust that system is. Let's pretend for a moment. Let's pretend this is a true story. Let's pretend you stole your neighbor's brand new lawn tractor. We're not talking lawn mower. This thing is a full-on tractor. I mean, it can do more things than you even figured out what it could do yet, and you stole it, and you love it. This is the best lawn tractor you've ever had. And you get found out, and you're, you, know, you're, you get arrested, you get put on trial, and everyone knows you're guilty. they got video of you doing it. they got video of you planning it. I don't know why you filmed yourself and put it on YouTube to do all that, but you did. And, and uh, it's just a cut-and-dry, closed case. You did it. Now imagine all of a sudden the judge said, well, hang on a second here. Yes, we know you stole the lawn tractor. But you also gave a little bit to PBS this week. You called your mom on Memorial Day weekend. I mean, that's a perk. And you volunteered at the local soup kitchen. Yeah, I think that's enough. You got enough good. You're free to go. How, how unjust would that be if that's how we, we really lived our lives? 
Imagine being the guy who was robbed from. Well, no, no, he, he stole my lawn tractor. Yeah, but he's done some good stuff too. I mean, take this to, to the point of something where you say, you know, okay, the, 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 I can see this a little more clearly. Imagine someone's on trial for murder. How much good would they need to have for them to have done? Who could say, oh, you know what? You're all good. All's forgiven. No big deal. You've done enough good. So you kill one little person. They were kind of mean anyway. I mean, it's like, it just doesn't add up. In a just system, no amount of good would offset the guilty action, right? No amount of good would offset the guilty action. In a just system, there is a fitting consequence for one's action. So the question still stands. So what happens when we die? Or Hebrews 9.27 would say that, that we live this one life, we die, and then we're judged by God. So that there is a place of judgment. There is this sense where we stand before God. But there's no scale of, do you have enough good to offset the bad? It's actually much more difficult than that in one sense. It's if you have any bad, you're done. Any bad, if you've, if you've sinned against God, if you've gone against God's will for your life, if you've gone against his word in any way that separates you from him. Think about it this way. Imagine you sinned against your best friend. And you both know it. You know what you did. It was their lawn tractor, whatever it was. I don't know. You, you make up a story. You think about last time that you were hurt or someone hurt you. And, and you both know what you did. You sinned against your best friend and you didn't do anything about it. You didn't seek forgiveness. You just left it alone. Would that ruin that relationship some? In most cases, it'd probably destroy you. They wouldn't be your best friend anymore. Unless we're able to come to a place of humility and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? In a very similar way, it's like that when we sin against God. It breaks down that relationship. We stand before a holy and perfect God. But we have sinned. We've, we've gone against Him. And if it's undealt with, it breaks breaks down that relationship. So what happens when we die? We see that we stand before a holy and righteous God and that God has given us a way to deal with that bad. No matter how little or how full the bad is in your life, doesn't matter. God has given us a way, it works for everyone, to deal with that so that it's just empty. It doesn't matter what's on the other side. It's just empty. There's, there's nothing bad to even weigh. And that's by trusting in Jesus. God gave us his son Jesus, Jesus as a substitutionary atonement. As a substitutionary atonement. He's a substitute. He takes our place. We're the ones that deserve death. We're the ones that deserve separation from God. But Jesus is a substitute for that. When we trust in him, when we surrender our lives to him, he goes in our place and he's an atonement. He atones for, he pays the price for our mistakes, for our sins, for the ways we've gone against God. And so what happens when we die? John 3.36 says that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, for those that have surrendered to Jesus and said, I believe you're my Lord and my Savior and I surrender my life to you, there's forgiveness. There's eternal life. For those who have not, there's death. There's hell. There's, there's separation from God. There's some things that 
the Bible says about hell and other things that it's vague on, but we do know is it's a separation from God. God, the, the giver of life, the author of life, the author of all things good. We're eternally separated from him. So the question I have for us this morning is, so if this is what happens when we die, we stand before a holy and righteous God, is have you surrendered to God and received a free gift of forgiveness in Jesus? Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? See, when I was growing up, I grew up in, in a Lutheran church, and I, I knew about some of this stuff head knowledge-wise. I, I understood that Jesus died on the cross for sin, but I, I didn't do anything with it. It's like someone giving you a birthday present when you're three. You say, this is, this is awesome. I mean, the wrapping job on this is amazing. This, I mean, you look at the table of presents, this one stands out. This has got to be the best gift here. I love it. And you just hold this present. You never open it. That's kind of what I was doing. I'm like, this is from Jesus. I just walk around, I'm all happy about it. But I never opened, I never received, I never said, yes, Jesus, you are my Lord and my Savior. It truly is as simple as that. Some people say, is the gospel really that simple? It is. That we are sinners separated from God, but we trust in Jesus. His death on the cross, his sacrifice, pays the price for our sins so we can be restored in a relationship with God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Now when we walk that road and take those steps, God brings about life change in us. Growing things change and he grows in us. And we learn new ways of what it looks like to follow him. And we repent of old ways. We take off the old. We put on the new. And we become more like him. And sometimes those roads can be challenging as we stand for him. But the gospel is still simple. Surrendering our life to Jesus receiving him as our Lord, the leader of our life, and as our Savior, the forgiver of our sins, and walking with him for the rest of our lives. I'm guessing there's probably three different kinds of people right now. There's probably some of us here who are already secure in our eternity with Jesus. We, we, we've heard all this. You can come up here. You can share all this as well. You can share it from your own story, your own life. If that's where you're at today, I want you to be thinking about a name or two or three. Who is someone who needs to know about this? Who is someone in your community? Maybe you don't even know their name yet. You just got a face of someone you see outside. Every time you're mowing on a Thursday, they're mowing on a Thursday. Hey, that's your neighbor. And you go, I wonder if they know about Jesus. Who's the person? Who's the face? Who's the name that God's put on your heart that needs to hear about him? I want you to think about that person. Here's what I want you to do. Some of you are thinking, okay, he's going to tell me to go tell him about Jesus. No. Go and build a friendship with them. A genuine, I love you, I care about you, friendship. And in the midst of that friendship, God will give you opportunities to make him known. God will give you opportunities to make much of his name. And he will work in and through you to work in and on them. It's not our job to work on people. People aren't projects. People are people. So go and make friends with whoever that person is. If you're already friends with them, grow in that relationship. Invite them into your home and look for that opportunity to share Jesus. So some of us are in that position. Steve, I already know all this. You know, okay, there's your, your, your homework. Some of us are in this other camp where we've received Jesus as Lord, but there's still parts of our life. We, we haven't opened that present. Maybe we're still, we haven't fully surrendered our lives to him. And if that's you, 
I invite you to take that step today, to fully surrender your life, whatever you've been holding on to, even saying, Jesus, you can have most of my life, but this part, where I live, where I work, what I do, uh, the kind of hobbies I'm into, um, things I'm looking at, things I'm thinking, things I say, whatever it is, this is mine. I'm going to say how this goes in my life. I, I don't care what your word says. Some of us have that peace, and we need to surrender that and let go of that and say, all right, Jesus, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a mess, but I surrender this to you. I encourage you to take that step today. And then there's a third camp of us, those who've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. I want to ask you, would you consider taking that step today? Would you come to a place of humility where you can say to God, I'm a mess. There's parts of my life that I can't take care of. There's parts of my life I can't clean up doesn't matter how much good I do, doesn't matter how much good I've done, there's still sin in my ledger. Will you wash it clean? That's done by receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you want to take that step this morning, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I just invite you to just pray with me. It doesn't have to be even the same words. It's just the heart of receiving this gift we've been given by God. And then after we're done praying, Here's your homework. For those who want to take this step for the first time, is go tell someone. If you came with a guest or a friend this morning, tell them. Say, hey, this is the first time I trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. This is the first time I surrendered my life to him. If you came on your own and you're a guest here this morning, I would love to hear your story. Or one of the elders that you saw passing uh, the, the, the communion plates. Or just anyone you're walking by when we have some pie out, out in the, under the tent after service. But tell someone. Let us celebrate with you the step you've taken. Scripture would say you've gone to a place of spiritual death to life when you trust in Jesus. And so let's join together in a word of prayer. Who's God putting on your heart to go and make friends with? What is that aspect of your life that God said you need to surrender this to me? And maybe this is for you the first time you're trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we're going to come before you right now and I just want to pause for anyone who wants to trust in you for the first time. I would ask them to just, in their own words, pray something along these lines. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that I've sinned against you. I acknowledge that there's a mess in my life. I acknowledge that you claim to be God and that you proved it on the cross. When you laid down your life, you went to the grave, died, were buried, but then you defeated death and you rose again. And there's so many eyewitness accounts of that that we can research and we can look into, Father, to see that Jesus, you truly did live, you truly did die, you truly did resurrect from the grave, that you truly are God. We trust in you, Jesus, as God. Forgive me of my sins, Jesus. Thank you for being a substitute to atone for my sin, for the bad that I've done, for the sin that I will do. I surrender my life to you. I receive you as my Lord. I make you the leader of my life, and I put you in the seat of control. I acknowledge you as Savior. I receive that free gift. I repent of my sin. I turn and go the other way. I thank you that my sin is forgiven 
as far as the east is from the west is my sin for me. Because of your work, Jesus, we give you all the glory for that. Thank you that you've brought me into your family, that I'm now a child of God who's been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, by your sacrifice, Jesus. Thank you for the freedom that comes in that life. Whatever our circumstances here this morning, Father, help us all to walk in joy because you are God and you are good. Amen.